hopefully you're awake. If not, this is not going to be good. Just kidding. It's good to, good to be with you guys again this morning. Thanks for the testimonies uh, and the prayer, Leah. Uh, this is, this is going to be good. I'm, I'm excited about it. If you're uh, new with us this morning or haven't been here in a while, we're studying the book of James, as you can see up there today. We're going to talk about being a friend of God. But when we're looking at the book of James, I want to, I want to remind us or tell you, if you hadn't heard, a couple of things. Number one, James was written by uh, Jesus' little brother, whose name is James. Raise your hand if you knew that Jesus had a little brother named James. Anybody? few of you? Okay, good. If you didn't know that, imagine what it's like having a little brother, or maybe you do have a little brother, and you know how annoying it is. To ha- I have a little brother, and he can be a little brother sometimes. So that's who's writing this book. But James walks with Jesus all through his th- three years of ministry. He grew up with Jesus, okay? And then he walks with him as Jesus is revealing who he is and who God is. And so James is writing this letter to a church that's struggling. It's, and we're going to see James say this specifically today, and we've talked about it uh, as we've kind of gone through the book, but uh, James is writing this letter to a church that is at war with itself, and that's a really strong word to use. Like, it's, he's not saying, like, y'all are having a little quarrel, you're having a little disagreement. He calls it a war, and that's a, that's a big, strong word, and we're going to look at today what James is addressing, uh, to, or saying directly to the church, but I want to remind us that our goal in this study is to discover true faith, okay, and what I mean by that, it's easy to look at a book like James, and, and come away with a list of things that I should do and things that I shouldn't do. And that's not our goal in this study. Our goal in this study is to look at the things that James is saying to this church and then make application for our own lives, not because we want to just act better or be better, but because we want God to work in us to make us better, right? And that's kind of what Leah was leading to today in her prayer is that we don't have anything within us that can make us good enough to be accepted by God in our own merit. That only comes through faith in Jesus Christ. And so for us, as we're studying this book, our goal is not to just make ourselves better people. In fact, we're going to see today that that's part of the problem that James is addressing. Our goal is to let Christ work in us as we are growing in our relationship. And that, uh, that word faith is us is, is the relationship that we have with Jesus and the trust that we place in him. And what we've talked about before is that, a, that faith, true faith, it never stops growing. It's not like you get to a place and you go, all right, check that off, I'm there, I've got that done. If you get to that place, you're going to very quickly realize you have not arrived where you thought you did. And the other thing that's cool about true faith is that it reveals itself to people. And what I mean by that is if you have faith in yourself or in the world, that's going to be evident. If you have faith in God, faith in Jesus, that also is going to be evident in the way that you live life and the choices that you choose to make. So last week we talked specifically at the end of chapter 3 about wisdom and where we as believers ought to look for wisdom. You You can see wisdom in the world and you can see wisdom that comes from God and James kind of parts those two and helps us to see that only one of those is going to be for our good and that's the wisdom that comes from God. James isn't saying that wisdom that comes from living on earth like wisdom that you get like if I don't pay this bill they're going to turn my electricity off like that's good wisdom okay. James is not saying that that's not good wisdom that's a life experience but he's saying that when when we're dealing with really difficult things some of the things that you guys share testimony about today that the place that we ought to go to ask for wisdom is to God. He is the one who has our best interest in mind. So we talked about the fact that, that the enemy's favorite tactic is to lead us towards, towards the world's wisdom. Because we, we learned last week that if, if the wisdom that we are following is trying to imitate God, it's going to lead to evil. 
And here's what I mean by that. We see in our world today often that people say you ought to live this way because it's going to be for your best good. But we also know that our best good can only come from God. And so if we're trying to live in our own understanding and our own wisdom or the world's wisdom, we're going to be led astray. James is trying to reorient the church back to looking to God and not to one another for wisdom. God's wisdom is not only going to produce peace in our lives, but it's going to help us to really understand who he is. I don't know if you figured this out yet or not, but this whole idea of a relationship with God that we have while we're here on earth, that whole process is simply us learning the truth about who God is. Because the world gives us one idea, but as we enter a personal relationship with him, we realize that what the things that we thought about God may not always be true. The things that we've heard from the world may not be true. So this leads us up to, to chapter 4, okay? And we're going to look at the first couple of verses, and we'll kind of work through those as we go on this morning. But James is going to continue to unpack what's happening in the hearts and the minds of the people in this church that he's writing to with me. So look at the first three verses. Let's start there. This is James chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. James says, what is the source of wars and fights among you? Don't they come from your passions that wage war within you? You desire and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and wage war. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and don't receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. Man, that's some strong language, right? Most of the time when people are, are bent towards fighting, when they, in their minds, they decide, I'm going down this route, doesn't matter what it costs me. When those, those times where it seems like there's no way that that person could ever reconcile, most of the time that can be traced back to pride. And that's what we're going to talk about for the first part of this this morning, that our pride divides us. As I've mentioned many times in this study, James is writing to this church that's at war within itself. And in this passage, we get a clear view of why that is. I want us to remember the, the setting in which this church is living, right? This is a church that's under Roman rule. Most of the known world was under Roman rule at this time. And their favorite way in the Roman culture of learning was having debates. They would sit in a public forum and I would bring one idea, and you would bring one idea, and we would debate or argue over that idea until one of the two of us was victorious. And when you're in that kind of setting, if you've ever been in a debate setting, you realize that often what happens is the person that wants to win the most will say whatever is necessary in order for them to win. And that's the setting in which we find the church. Because the church was choosing to follow the world's way of teaching, it was at war with itself because each of the members felt that they needed to be right. Culturally, the, the goal was for you to be victorious as you're debating these issues, or in the case of the church, this theology, you wanted to be right. The issues that they were debating were lost in the fact that they were arguing. You ever been in a fight like that before with someone, and you've been fighting so long that you forgot what you were fighting about, you just know you're mad? I think that, yeah, you're giggling. A few of you have been there. If you've been married for very long, you probably had one of those your own self, okay? That's kind of what's happening here. The chief thing that was being argued over was the, this idea of the role that the law played in this new understanding of God that was revealed through Jesus. Keep in mind that for most, if not all of them, they grew up under Jewish law. 
And I can only imagine how difficult it would have been for them to have to leave those traditions. Can you imagine growing up your whole life believing that in order to be pleasing to God, you had to keep the law perfectly. And then this guy, Jesus, comes and says, I fulfilled the law. Don't worry about that anymore. Focus on me. That would have been hard. And that's what they're arguing about. And we see that this is not just happening in this one church. This is not an isolated incident. This is happening in a lot of other churches as well. This wasn't a singular event. Um, if you don't know it, most of the New Testament, most of the, the, the writings that we have are a compilation of letters that Paul and others are writing to these churches to give direction and teaching so that they can understand what it means to live under this new covenant that Jesus brought to us. Look with me at an example of this. This is in uh, Titus chapter 3 verses 4 through 11. So this is Paul writing to Titus who's a leader of a church. He says, but when the kindness of our God and Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not by works of righteousness that we had done, but according to his mercy, through the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. He poured out his Spirit on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that, having been justified by his grace, we may become heirs with the hope of eternal life. This saying is trustworthy. I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed God might carefully, uh, might be careful to devote themselves to good works. These are good and profitable for everyone. Then he says, but avoid foolish debates, genealogies, quarrels, and disputes about the law because they are unprofitable and worthless. Reject a divisive person after the first and second warning. For you know that such a person has gone astray and is sinning. He is self-condemned. So here Paul is addressing, and you can see this in the book of Timothy. You can see it in the book uh, to the church in Ephesus. You can see it in the, book, the, the letter to the church in Corinth. This is happening over and over and over again. All of these letters, all of these writings are trying to help these new believers understand that you don't earn God's merit by your works. You can only earn it through Jesus. And that's why I included that. I didn't want to just have the part where Paul says, stop fighting. I want you to see what Paul's argument is. Paul is saying that all of these things that you're fighting about, all this law, it doesn't matter anymore. It's worthless because of what Jesus has done. So stop fighting. He follows up uh, at the end of that by saying, leave it alone. If the person that's starting the quarrel doesn't stop, just ask them to leave. God's character isn't divisive. And if the church allows that kind of person to dominate the conversations, that's going to overshadow who God is and what he's doing, right? If the people that have the loudest voice in the congregation are those that are starting the fights, anybody that's in the church or anybody that visits the church, that's what they're going to assume God is like because that's what they're hearing. And so Paul is saying, if you're, if you're combating that issue, just ask them to leave. God had dynamically changed the nature of his relationship with people. And there were many who were struggling to understand that change. And, and I think we can feel that. I think we can understand that. But their way of dealing with those changes was to debate about what it meant rather than asking God to understand, help them understand what he was doing. They debated about what they thought he was doing. Do you see the difference? They can go to God and ask him, what's, what's going on? How is this affecting my life? 
But instead of going to the source, they said, no, I'm going to stand over here and I'm going to tell you what I think he's doing and we're going to fight about that. Do you see how ridiculous that sounds? As many of us have experienced before, those who want to fight are typically willing to take those arguments to the grave simply to be correct. Raise your hand if you've ever been there. I got mine raised high, okay? You're just like, no, I am winning, dadgummit. I'm going to win this argument. Because of their pride, they would not or could not give up on their particular standpoint. Rather than letting God speak into what was happening and what they're struggling with, they looked within themselves and their past beliefs to try to figure out what truth was. Rather than letting God to, to speak it to them directly. As we see by their actions, they were far more committed to the process than they were to the truth. Let's look what James goes on to say in verses 4 through 6. He says, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? So whoever wants to be the friend of the world becomes the enemy of God. Or do you think it's without reason that the scripture says the spirit he made to dwell in us envies intensely, but he gives greater grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Just as a quick aside, depending on what translation that you're looking at this morning, you may see verse, the first uh, verse four translated instead of adulterous people as adulteress, which is feminine. And I want to point out that often people have tried to make that to mean something negative towards women, and that's not the case. James is speaking in the way that an Old Testament prophet would have. And I don't know if you'll remember, but we as believers are the bridegroom of Christ. That's how we are described, which means we are the bride of Christ. So when he's using that feminine language, he's addressing all of us, not women specifically. I thought that was important to point out. James is addressing all of our desire to conform to and to please the world. So point number two for today is our desire for the world's approval separates us from God. As the bridegroom of Jesus, if we seek the world's approval, we are cheating on Jesus. And we'll put that in today's terms. That's what he's saying. I'm sure that most of us are familiar with the phrase, be in the world but not of the world. Y'all have heard that before? This is kind of what James is getting at in this section. And I want to define again what James means by the world. If you look at the Greek, it's this word cosmo, which comes from the word cosmos, which is where we get the idea of the universe, of the world, right? But in this particular word, the way it's translated, it means world system, and that's the people constituting the world whose values, beliefs, and morals are in distinction and rebellion to God's. So James is talking about people that are distinctly against God. James is saying that if we are on the team of those who oppose God, then we also are opposed to God. In focusing on our desire to be like the world, we're turning our backs on God. We're cheating on Him. In essence, we are saying that the world's way of doing things is better than God's way. And if we are following this line of thought, the message that we are spreading is in direct competition with God. You follow me? If we're saying to ourselves and to other people that what is best for us is what the world says is best for us. We are in competition with what God is saying. Rather than trusting in God and encouraging others to do the same, we're preaching our own gospel, right? The gospel of Will Butterfield instead of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's a terrible gospel. Don't listen to it. The gospel of Will Butterfield is terrible. What we ought to be preaching is the gospel of Jesus, and the only way we can do that is by being God's friend, by being connected with him and seeking him for wisdom. If our time and energy are focused on ourselves, 
we are building up our own kingdom. And we're not directly, and we are not only directly opposing God, but we're also pushing others away from him in doing so. This is the exact opposite of what Jesus did. Rather than thinking of the needs of others, often we are focused on what we want. This verse came up this week in my study, Proverbs 21.10. It says, a wicked person desires evil. He has no consideration for his neighbor. Do you see how great a contrast there is between what the world says and what God says? If we think about, I keep saying what the world says, and I want us to think about what that means for a moment. What does the world tell us is best for us? Is it to pursue God? No, they tell us to do what feels right. If it feels right for you, then you do it for you, right? You focus on your own life, you build up yourself, and the rest of the world will have to fend for itself. And that's the opposite of the gospel. The world encourages you to do what's best for you, whereas God tells us to do what's best for others. This is the example that Jesus lived. In church, it's impossible to do both at the same time. You cannot live for yourself and for others at the same time. You have to pick one. We've seen over and over and over again in the Old Testament that God's people choose to turn their backs on God in order to worship other gods. I believe this is what James is talking about in verse 5. Look at this example with me from Joshua chapter 24, verses 16 through 19. This is Joshua after they've entered the promised land. He's addressing the nation of Israel. And the people replied, we will certainly not abandon the Lord to worship other gods. Okay, we've heard that before, right? They said, for the Lord our God, this is Israel, brought us, out, brought us and our ancestors out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery, and performed these great signs before our eyes. He has also protected us all along the way we went, and among all the peoples whose lands we traveled through. The Lord drove out before us all the peoples, including the Amorites who lived in the land. We too will worship the Lord because he is our God. But Joshua told the people, you will not be able to worship the Lord because he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions and sins. In this passage, Joshua is reminding the, the nation of Israel how many times they have said, we will worship the Lord their God only, and how many times they didn't, right? Remember that a whole generation of people died in the wilderness as a result of worshiping other gods. And so their children are the ones that are inheriting the promised land, and they're saying, Joshua's reminding them, God has established his covenant with you. He's to be your only God, the only one you're going to worship. And we're moving into this land that's going to tell you to worship these other gods. And I'm telling you right now, don't do it. And they're like, oh, we would never. We would never worship another God. And I was like, okay, we'll see. Time will tell. He's also reminding them that if they forfeit the, gov the covenant that God is offering, they are forfeiting the forgiveness that they need. This is the point that James is driving home. We either worship and serve God or we worship and serve the world. You cannot do both at the same time. God says he's a jealous God. You can only have one God. That's me. And if you're putting anything else in that place, you are opposed to who I am. Look at verse 6 again. He says, but he gives greater grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This verse in this passage is kind of the structural linchpin. It's the, the structure that holds this whole thing together. It connects the first five verses with the last four verses. It's the main point of what James is trying to say in these first ten verses of chapter four. He's saying if we are living in pride, we are pushing God away. But if we're living humbly, God is going to draw near to us. 
James is building this case piece by piece, showing the church their sin. And I want you to frame this in your mind, okay? James is going into a group of people who have made it their goal in life to debate. And he's going in to convince them that that debate is sin, okay? That's why James is using such harsh language and reminding them of the failures of the past. It's because he's got to go in there with a case to say, I know you think you're right, but you're not. You see what I'm saying? He's calling for them to stop giving in to pride and to live humbly before the Lord. And this is the same message for us. We cannot live a life that's pleasing to the world and pleasing to God at the same time. And I know that sounds harsh, but the world does not have the same goals that God does. The world does not want for us what God wants for us. They're two different standards. I don't know if you've ever thought about it in this detail or not before, but if the world is telling you to live for you and they're telling everyone else to live for themselves, who's looking out for you? Just you, right? You're never going to be able to get ahead in life when we're only focused on ourselves. So how do we go about humbling ourselves? Look at what he says in the next three verses, verse 7 through 10. He says, therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. We're going to address that in just a second, that negative stuff that he just talked about. But verse number, uh, point number three for today is humility now will bring you exaltation later. This idea goes back to the great role reversal that we talked about earlier in this study. That in the end, whatever you had on earth, you're not going to have anymore. And whatever you didn't have on earth, you will have as you enter eternal life. You'll notice that this section begins and ends with the same idea, to submit to God in humility. These are kind of the bookends of this section. And in between, James tells us to turn our focus, our focus from earthly desires inwards towards our hearts and what God wants to do in us. He says things like clean your hands, purify your hearts. James is telling us to look at our own lives, look inside, and let God do whatever he needs to do to purify us. The condition of our hearts while we're here on earth is vitally important. And I want us to see how Jesus dealt with this in his ministry. Look with me at Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. This is a, a story that we're familiar with. Jesus says, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and looked down on everyone else. It says, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee was standing and praying like, like this about himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, greedy, unrighteous, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of everything I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even raise his eyes to heaven, but kept striking his chest and saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you, this one went down to his house justified rather than the other, because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, I'm pretty confident if I asked everybody in this room, if I did a little poll real quick and said, which of the two characters in this story do you want to be identified with? I think everyone would say the tax collector, right? Because nobody likes a know-it-all. Nobody likes somebody who stands up and says how great they are, right? 
We agree with that? Okay. It's worth mentioning that this tax collector is who we want to be. Our name for our church, the gathering place, comes from Luke chapter 15, verse 1, where it says that notorious sinners and tax collectors gathered around Jesus. That's us. Notorious sinners, tax collectors. People who are sinners who are in need of Jesus. We are the ones that are gathering around him. Because we know we don't have it all together. We know that we need him. You see, the Pharisee thought he had his life all together, right? That's why he was making these big pronouncements about himself, saying, I'm glad I'm not like all these other sinners. Talitha sent me a video years ago. It was a redub of an old Jesus movie, and it, this guy goes, look at all these sinners. And it was supposed to be Jesus. That's not how, that's not how we should look at one another, Right? On the other hand, there's this tax collector who knew his life was a mess and he came before God in humility seeking grace and forgiveness because he knew that he didn't have it all together. Now in verse 9, James says something weird. He says, be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy turned to gloom. That's an odd thing to say. But James is repeating some of the things he heard his big brother say. He's asking us to adjust our hearts in a very particular way. He's given us an alternative way to view what is essential in life. Rather than living for our pleasure, get down in the messiness with other people. James is referencing the Beatitudes. Jesus said this, uh, and it's recorded in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3 through 11. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom is heaven is theirs. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. You are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. I wanted you to see that James is preaching the same thing that Jesus is preaching. James is just using less words, okay? Notice how different Jesus' idea of being blessed is than the world is. Like nobody's mourning and takes a selfie and says, hashtag blessed, right? Anybody? No? What it means to be blessed according to the world's standards and according to God's standards are different things. For too long in James's time, the church conformed itself to the world's idea of what was proper behavior towards themselves and towards others. This is exactly what's happening at the time of James's writing. And rather than relying on the Holy Spirit and the leaders that God had appointed, they chose to follow the example of the world. They chose to base their theology on what they thought about God rather than on what God said. As you and I know today, church still often looks like the world. How it should teach, they look at the world on how they should teach and operate rather than on what God is saying. I saw a hilarious um, video yesterday about how to give a TED talk without actually saying anything. And the guy was just repeating the patterns of the way people speak when they're at TED talks. And they would get really low and quiet as if they were building to a point that never happened. Or did it? We can look at the world and try to emulate the world in the church. 
But we're not building up the kingdom of God. We're just building up another kingdom here on earth that's focused around us and what we find interesting. Here's what I want us to understand today is that you and I have an opportunity to change the world's perception of who God is and what he is about. And the only way that that happens is by us individually putting our focus on him. As we lay down our pride and allow God to work in our lives, the world is going to see something different because our lives are not going to look like the people around us. Not because we're standing up talking about how good we are, but because we are humbly sitting at Jesus' feet saying, I need you. And sitting with other people who are struggling and saying, we need you. As our true faith develops, the world's going to see us as friends of God. As I I mentioned in the last couple of weeks, Jesus said that they're going to see our good works and give glory to the Father in heaven. Not because we've done good things, but because God is good to us. The people that God's placed in our lives are going to get to see the goodness of who God is because of you, because of the way you're choosing to live your life. David Hill sent me an author and a title this week, and for whatever reason, I assumed it was a podcast, and so I went to Spotify, and I started searching podcasts, and I found one by that author and by that title. And so I texted him and was like, hey, do I start at the beginning of this podcast or just pick one? And he didn't respond for a while, and so I just scrolled through and picked one. And it was this guy talking about practicing a preference for God. And as I was looking at the passage this week, I thought, man, this is, this is perfect. I've heard of practicing the presence of God. That was by a monk named Brother Lawrence. I read that back in college. But I never thought about practicing a preference for God. And what the guy was talking about in this podcast was us training our hearts and our minds to prefer what God wants to do in our lives over what we want to do in our lives. And I thought that was such a great thought for us to consciously prefer And to ask God to change our hearts to prefer what he wants for us rather than what we want for us. I want to wrap this up today by pointing out that in this parable that Jesus tells about the tax collector and the Pharisee, which one of those two got exalted? Who's the good guy in the story? The tax collector. Who would have thought? Not the religious leader. He's not the hero. The humble sinner. That's who we want to be. That's who we want to be in our community, is not somebody that has all the answers, not somebody who's pious and looks down their noses at everybody else, but one of the people, one of the people who is in need of a Savior. You may not ever see the results of humility in your lifetime, but I can promise you this because Scripture says it, that if you live your life with Jesus, if your goal is to sit at his feet, and let him work in your life and change who you are. People are going to see that. And one day your story is going, to be, is going to be told. And you're going to be exalted. Not because you were a great person. But because you loved the Lord. And it was evident in your life. And I think if we're all honest with each other, that's what we want. We want our days to end and people to be like, Man, that, that guy, that lady loved Jesus and loved the people around them. That's what we all want. And we don't get there by arguing with people. We don't get there by creating fights. We get there by sitting at Jesus' feet and doing what he did, loving one another. That's our goal. That's how we develop true faith, is by letting God work in our lives to change who we are and letting the world around us see those changes as they happen. Let's pray.
Jesus, I know this is a tall order for all of us to, to learn to prefer you. It's not where our hearts naturally want to go. Father, I'm asking for myself and for my, my family and my friends here. God, that you would change our hearts from the inside out. That you would give us the desire to prefer you. Father, that you would bring us into such close relationship with you that when others see us, they say, that is a friend of God. God, that when the world sees our works, the things that you have called us to do, that we would not be the ones to get the glory, but you would. God, you, you are the only one who can make that change in us. So, Father, today as we, as we leave, as we spend time thinking about these passages this week, as we discuss them in our life groups, God, I ask that you would change all of our hearts. Father, that you would help us to see the sin in our lives and our need for you. God, I ask that you would work in us and change our hearts to be like yours. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.